0: So this morning's topic, we're, we've been going through, we started two weeks ago, three weeks ago. We, we're going through questions that you've submitted that you face as being an, an everyday disciple. As you're out living your life following Jesus in your everyday places, doing your everyday stuff, we know there's just a lot of questions and things you're facing and wondering about. And so a number of weeks ago, we asked you to submit questions. And so we, we took those questions, and we were trying to address uh, a, a lot of the big ones, and there, there are some big ones, and so we're going to be tackling those over the next number of weeks. Um, each one, it stands on its own, but it also builds, it can stand on its own, but it really also builds on each other, and this morning's topic is uh, really foundational to the rest of them that we're going to address when we get into uh, some heavier topics such as abortion, sexuality, gender. Um, next week, I'm going to talk about, hey, can I smoke weed now that it's legal, um, Come to find out. You'll have to see. Um, <laughs> never mind. I was going to filter, Britain. Filter. Um, <laughs> this morning, though, we're talking about the topic of uh, how, how, do, how can we trust the Bible? How do we know the Bible wasn't just made up by a bunch of dudes? Why, why, why can we trust the Bible when we read it? Uh, the reason why this is so important is because over the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at the word for the foundation and so if we don't believe that the word is is the word of god and that it holds weight and authority then there's not a lot of there's not a lot of weight to the next number of weeks so this morning um we have someone teaching not a guest to moran park he's a part of moran park his name is chris chris beetham and if you sit in the balcony why don't you why not you just come up chris come and walk on up give chris a round of applause here Chris is uh, the husband to an, an awesome woman, his wife Mindy, and five incredible kids. And they are, they're balcony dwellers most weeks. So, balcony, you recognize this guy up there, right? Uh, down here, you may not recognize him quite as much. But uh, the reason why we asked Chris to do this is because um, he, he's an incredible man of the Lord and a gifted teacher. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about Jesus gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some shepherds, and some teachers. For the purpose of building up the body of Christ into maturity, and, and for the work of ministry, and Chris is a is a teacher who is here today to do that. Um, Chris, I'm not going to get into a bunch of credentials. He hates all that stuff. But he, here's the gist of why. Uh, what I, I want you to know is Chris is a man who studied the Word for many many years. He he knows it deeply. But sometimes there's a temptation when like oh they study the Word it's just very heady. Uh, Chris is, not only has a deep understanding for the Word. Um, but he's a heart for the Lord. They just, uh, number, they've been at Rand Park for a handful of years now, and before that they were in Ethiopia for 10 years where he and his family served a school where Chris taught and trained up uh, pastors and missionaries in, in the Word and in the Bible. And so now he works at Zondervan, and he he works in just as editing some of the commentaries and the more academic things where he's really spending a lot of time in the Word. And so Chris is a a man who understands the Word, how we got the Word, but has a deep love for not just the Word, but the one who wrote the Word, which is even more important. One real quick story about Chris uh, and his wife. When Chris and Mindy got here four years ago-ish? Three and a half. Three and a half, okay. All of a sudden— they're in this hallway, and his wife, Mindy, sees my wife, Michelle, and, and she says, she looks and sees, sees her and says, Michelle, what are you doing here? And Michelle looked at her and goes, Mindy, what are you doing here? Fifth, uh, 20 years ago, when my wife was in high school in the Chicago area, Mindy was my wife's small group leader, all right? And it was mind-blowing that they'd shown up here one Sunday and had no connection, had lost touch over all those years, and the Lord brought them back. Not only that, but Mindy was Dave's, Dave wife, Dave's wife Cece's roommate back in college at Hope, okay? And so it's like, the Lord obviously is bringing you guys back here. So they become just great friends and incredible people. And if you don't know them, well, you should, because they're awesome. So I'm excited for what the Lord has for us today through through Chris um, but I'm going to pray for him before we get rocking and rolling. <clears throat> God, I do thank you for the things that you've been stirring in Chris's heart for us this morning. I thank you for that the gifts that you've given him, and he understands they're not for himself, God, but to, to, to glorify you and to build up the body. We trust that that will take place this morning. God, I know that his... The things that he's prepared, his heart, his mind, all those things are laid down before you as a living sacrifice. And so, God, I pray that you would take those and receive those is a pleasing gift to you. God, That we ask that your spirit would continue to speak to him, continue to guide him, continue to lead him every step of the way this morning. God, that the things that he said would not fall on deaf ears, but that our hearts would be soiled that is good and ready to receive the word. God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. God, that faith would rise up in this place, Lord Jesus that we would be able to um, grow in a deeper understanding, Lord, of not just about a topic, but about you this morning, God. Our love and our faith would grow for you this morning, King Jesus. So I pray your blessing and anointing over Chris this morning as he shares with us. We pray this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Good morning, Moran Park.
1: So the Slido question uh, this morning that I've been invited to address, and I, I'm, it's a privilege to uh, be here and it's a privilege to get the chance to uh, do it on the 10-year anniversary. I think that's appropriate. The actual question that we're addressing today is very appropriate for our 10-year anniversary because sometimes you need to take a step back and ask the more fundamental questions. We come and we have, we preach the Word and assume that the Word is true and it has, it's going to guide our lives and shape our lives. We build our lives upon the Word. Um, but I think it's appropriate that we actually, on the 10-year anniversary, actually take a step back and say, can we trust the Word? is the word reliable. Um, we're building our lives upon the word. Apparently eternal life is at stake, uh, and so much rides on whether this, work, this, this word, this book, is true. So there were a couple, two or three questions on the slido.com um, website that we had that uh, circled around uh, this topic, and so we're going to just kind of take those and, and clump those together and try to address uh, that question all in, one, all in one punch, we won't be able to address all your questions. Uh, I won't be able to, but we will because we only have half an hour. But we do have some time to uh, raise the question and start you on a path that you can begin to think this through for yourself. We're actually going to take, uh, it's going to break down into two parts this morning. So we're going to look at scripture itself. Let Scripture bear witness to itself as to what it says it is. So what does Scripture say concerning itself? What is Scripture's testimony concerning itself? That will be the first half uh, of uh, what we're doing this morning. And the second half is going to actually be a historical argument for uh, the reliability of Scripture uh, based upon the resurrection, the historical resurrection of Jesus. Uh, There was a handout that was being passed out as you walked in the door. Um, if you didn't get that, we may still have some copies. You can uh, possibly raise your hand so we can get, the, get that to you or possibly ran out, I'm not sure. Uh, but we'll be looking at that, especially the second half of the, second half of the talk. Um, it would be maybe tempting to take a look at that while I'm doing the first half of the talk, but if you can hold off and just kind of hold on to it until we get to the second half of the talk and we can not be distracted in the first half so that when we actually get to the second half, um, we have that handout and we're ready to go. Okay. So, what does Scripture say concerning itself? Now, we're going to talk about the issue that might be swirling in your head about that um, as a transition to the second part of the uh, talk this morning. But what does Scripture say about itself? What is Scripture's witness concerning itself? Well, the first place that we have to start is that God is true. God is true. Isaiah 6 and... Uh, Pete's going to try to keep up with me as we have several um, slides this morning. But Isaiah 6, 1 to 4 says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah, the prophet, has a vision of the Lord in his temple, his heavenly temple. He's commissioned as a prophet in this this scenario, in this text. And what he sees is, the most powerful angelic beings in the universe proclaiming about the lord himself that he is what holy 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 what does that mean he's utterly set apart from his creation he's completely thricefold sacred There is no darkness in God. There is no lie in God. There is no falsehood in God. He is truth by his very nature. He can speak no lies. He is faithful. He is holy. He is sacred. He is completely other. He is true. He is light. There is no darkness in him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 to 6 simply really summarizes this and picks this up. It says this is a message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And verse 6 says if we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness we lie and do not do what is true. Light truth darkness lies and God has nothing to do with this. That's the scripture's testimony. God is holy. God is light. God is truth. So God is true. Now, this true God is a speaking God. This true God is a speaking God and has spoken through his prophets. Hebrews 1.1 This God is a speaking God. This God is a self-revealing God. And when he speaks, when he reveals himself, he speaks only truth. And he has spoken, he's revealed himself through his prophets. Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That is, through Moses and through all the prophets of the Old Testament. That's what the the testimony is, uh, the witnesses to here. Moses is called a prophet in Deuteronomy 34.10. You know the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc., Daniel. God spoke. To our ancestors through these prophets at many times in various ways. This true God is a speaking God, and when he speaks, he speaks through his prophets. That leads us to the next point, which is God inspired these human authors to write down his true words. God inspired these human authors, these prophets, to write down his true words. So God is truth and true. He's a speaking God. He's a self-revealing God. He's chosen to reveal himself ultimately through his word, his written word, um, through human authors that he has inspired to write down these true words. We call these writings as collected, the Bible or scripture. For example, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture is breathed out by God or exhaled by God. It's His very breath, so to speak, moves and is written down in words through human authors, very human authors, who are inspired by His Spirit to write these things down. That's the testimony of Scripture. Second Peter 1, 20, says the same thing. Second Peter 1, 20, 21 says this Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Word of God is divine words. They originate in Scripture, says Scripture. They come from God. God breathes them out by His Spirit. His Spirit comes and works in and through very human people with all their personalities, with all their peculiar characteristics, and works despite them writing down true words of God for His people. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. That's 2 Peter 1:20-21. 20, Scripture doesn't have its origin in the human will, but ultimately the divine will by the Holy Spirit. Fourthly then, Scripture is true because it is the very words of the true God. Scripture is true because it, because it is the very words of the true God. Second Samuel twenty-two thirty-one 31 says this, As for God, His way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. Or Psalm 19, 7, 8, 9, and 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wives as simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. That's another way for describing Scripture. The decrees of the Lord are true, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey than honey from the honeycomb. Why are they more precious than gold? Why do people give their lives for this word? Because it's perfect, verse 7. It's trustworthy, verse 7b. It's right, verse 8. It's radiant, verse 8b. Pure, verse 9. True, verse 9b. Therefore, it's more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and sweeter than honey. David elsewhere in Psalm 119 says this, Psalm 119 verse 142, Lord, your righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Or Psalm 119 verse 151, yet you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. Or Psalm 119 verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Jesus' attitude was the same. What did Jesus think about Scripture? We well, could say historically as a first century Jew, and we all know that, historically we know that first century Jews believed that the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, uh, the Prophets, and the Psalms, the three part, tripartite uh, uh, Hebrew Bible Scriptures that they had in the first century, they all would believe and be, were absolutely convinced that Scripture was the word of God, and they were willing to die for their faith. But what does Jesus say in the New Testament? What does He say about uh, Scripture? John ten thirty five, Jesus says Scripture cannot be broken. That's an epic story. That is true. That is divine in origin. That's a system of truth that can't be busted up. You can't. It's not contradictory. It's reliable. It's inspired. And it affirms truthfully all that it says about God and his relationship to humanity. Scripture cannot be broken. Those are the words of Jesus in John 10, 35. Matthew 4, 4, what does Jesus say? Context here, Jesus is in the wilderness. He's being tempted by the devil. It's been 40 days. He hasn't had any food, hasn't had any water. kind of hungry, kind of tired, kind of thirsty. He's locked in mortal combat with Satan in the desert. If Satan can get Jesus to fall, to fail, to stumble, to sin, the game's over. The sinless Son of Man must go to the cross as a sinless, perfect sacrifice. And if Satan fails, gets, I'm sorry. If Satan succeeds in getting Jesus to succumb to temptation and sin, the game's up. He's no longer the sinless, perfect sacrifice for our sins. So Satan's all out attack. It's World War III right there, Mano against. Not a mono, it's supernatural mono. In the desert, forty days, hungry, and he's tempting him. And Jesus says, "This it is written: Man shall not live on bread alone." Right? Just turn these. I know you're so hungry, Jesus. I know you're so hungry. Just turn these stones into bread. Just have a little bit of something to eat. No big deal. You know, tempting him ultimately to take care of his own needs instead of trusting God for his needs. He says this, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where does Scripture think, where does Jesus think Scripture comes from? Comes from the mouth of God. That's Jesus' view. Divine in origin. God breathe. Divine in origin. That's Jesus' view. Take a look at Luke 24. This is verses 25 to 27, and then we're going to skip to... uh, Verses 44 to 47 of the same chapter. This is after the crucifixion. Um, this is after his, uh, he's been buried. The tomb, uh, the tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. We have these two disciples walking to uh, Emmaus. And uh, Jesus appears to them on the road. He's talking with them. They don't recognize that it's Jesus. And he says this to them along in the conversation. He says, uh, o foolish ones and slow to heart, because they don't, they don't believe that uh, people have seen now by this point the resurrected Christ. He's appeared to his disciples, and uh, they're having a hard time getting their hands, their, their, their eyes, their minds, their, their heart around this. So he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and that's a, that's a typical Jewish way of talking about the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the, the law, the five, first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the prophets was everything else except for included from uh, Joshua through um, Malachi the, the prophets, and then the writings included Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, um, etc. So this three-part canon with the Psalms being, of course, the most prominent book and the longest book was used as kind of a shorthand for that third portion of Scripture. Anyway, everything written about me in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. So he then opens their minds to understand the Scriptures, to understand it in this way, that the whole Old Testament is speaking of him climaxing with him and his work on the cross and his resurrection. And he says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. And on the third days rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Look at verse 44. I don't know if you can get that one up again. Verse 44. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. God is the true God, God's a speaking God, God has made promises, God is writing this epic story, everything he says about everything he says is true, all his promises must be fulfilled, and therefore, and all those promises are finding their fulfillment uh, in me. Jesus believes that God's promises are true and therefore must be fulfilled, uh, revealing that he believes in the absolute trustworthiness and reliability and truthfulness of Scripture. So what does Scripture say concerning itself? Scripture says it's from God. It's divine in origin, God-breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written in and through humans. People wrote it down. Paul, Isaiah, Moses, Ezekiel. But despite their fallenness, the Spirit was able to move in and through them to write down God's true words. And therefore, that word is trustworthy, true, reliable, and you can stake your life on it. That's Scripture's testimony concerning itself. The question that arises at this point is, especially if you're a a little bit skeptical or a hardened skeptic is that you could raise the question, isn't this a circular argument? You're going to the Bible to argue that the Bible is true, right? So the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true, So it says it's the, and since it's the Bible, we know that it's true. You see the circular, circularity of, of that argument. I would argue it's not quite a circular argument. We live in the West. If we're going to question, somebody's, question somebody and put somebody in court, we're going to let the witness have a say. We're going to let the witness have a chance to give testimony concerning his, himself or herself. That's only fair and it's only right that we let Scripture speak concerning itself if we're going to question it. What does the Scripture say? What does the witness say? The witness says what I just said. You put Scripture in the dock, and Scripture says, I am divine in origin. I am from God. I am true. I am faithful. And I will not lead you astray in all that I affirm about God and about humanity's relationship. To God, I want them to because I know that's the crux of the issue. So I want to give you a second argument, a historical argument, not because I don't think Scripture's witness is sufficient, insufficient, because I think it is. Now that you've been in here for these first 15 minutes listening to me very politely, you have now a decision to make. You've heard me. You've seen Scripture's witness concerning itself. And now you're going to walk out that door here in about a half hour, 45 minutes, and you're going to be making a choice. Right? Is it true or is it not? You're now faced with a decision. So I think Scripture is sufficient. I don't think it's insufficient. I think it's given self-testimony. And I'm willing to give this historical argument, and I'm transitioning now into my second part, this historical argument to give you some food for thought. Is there another way, is there another angle that we could take to perhaps consider these things that might be helpful for some of us, not all of us, not all of us are going to need this? Some of you are where, just, just where you're at. I believe the Bible. The Bible's true. The Bible says it. I'm going to live and die for it. Hey, amen. Some of you are here. I grew up in church. I grew up hearing this stuff. I want to believe. I have a lot of questions. And I don't know what I think. And some of you are here. And that's okay, too. I don't believe this stuff. Maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you didn't. Maybe you've been burned. Maybe you've been really hurt by Christians. Maybe you're really sick and tired of how the Bible is used as a blunt instrument in our culture. One way or the other. Either a against others who aren't like us, perhaps, or back at us. It's a bunch of myths and fables and ridiculousness, or whatever. I hope that this historical argument might help you and nudge you to consider, once again, what Scripture might be uh, for you. The most, well, in my opinion... <clears throat> the most important question, one of the most important questions, let me just qualify. One of the most important questions historically, I've been trained as a historian, I think about these things all the time, one of the most important questions ever in the West, in Western history is, why did Christianity, let me not talk, call it Christianity, why did the Christian tradition, why did the Jesus movement, because Christianity sounds like a religion and I don't think it's religion at all. Why did the Jesus movement begin? And why did it take the shape that it did? Why did the Christian movement begin historically? And why did it take the shape that it did? With a crucified and resurrected Christ for the forgiveness of sin at the very center of the message. You want to know the message of the New Testament? Jesus Christ, Son of God, crucified, resurrected for us, that's every document. So I, that's just that's the central message. So why did it why did it begin? Because there was the, at one point there was no such thing as Christianity, right? The Jesus movement, and all of a sudden historically it exploded on the scene of human history, and it had this message as its central message: crucified, resurrected Christ for the forgiveness of sins for us. The Christian faith of the Jesus movement is the only tradition, the only—just bear with me—the religion, the only religion that claims that God has acted into, has broken into human history. That God has broken into human history. That God has acted in human history. Buddhism doesn't claim that. Human Hinduism doesn't claim that. Islam doesn't claim that. Actually, Muhammad saw visions. So the Christian tradition, or the Jesus movement, is the only tradition that claims as its central tenet that God broke into human history and did stuff. And if that's true, the historian, theoretically, should be able to explore whether these things are so. Do you catch that? If God actually acted in human history, if he broke into human history, he left a footprint, that means. And historians, theoretically, should be able to explore these things as to whether they are so. So the Christian faith has appealed to history, and to history, therefore, we must go. What we're going to do is we're going to take our, the Bible is God's inspired, just for a moment, don't call me blasphemous, don't stone me, just for a moment, just for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we're going to take off this hat. That says the Bible is God's inspired word. Just going to put it aside just for a moment. Don't pick up the stones. And we're going to put on another hat, a historian's hat. We're just going to look at the evidence as historians. Let's go on an Indiana Jones adventure together. I have four historical facts surrounding the resurrection. that the best explanation historically for those four facts is a resurrection. Historical fact number one. So this is now where we are in your handout, if you got one. And I can even argue most of the first two not even looking at the New Testament. Historical fact number number one. Jesus was an actual historical figure, a Jew, described here as Christ and as the originator of the Christian movement. He was executed under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate in Judea somewhere between A.D. 26, 36, most likely A.D. 30. This comes from Tacitus or Tacitus in English. sounds so much better in Latin with Tacitus. Say Tacitus for me. Tacitus. All right, Tacitus, I like we got to say him in English. Tacitus was a Roman historian of the first rank. He was commissioned to be a historian of the first century. He lived in the late first He's a contemporary of Paul and John. He lived in the late first century, early second century, and wrote his histories uh, in the late, uh, I'm sorry, in the early second century, so just a few decades after uh, Jesus and Paul lived. Scholars use him for all kinds of things to study the uh, Roman imperial, the Roman Empire. He was commissioned by the emperor to be a historian. He had full access to the Roman imperial archives. And he actually wrote a Roman history of all the emperors from stretching from the first century century BC with uh, Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar all the way up to uh, the time of his own day he writes this concerning Jesus. Now, this is pretty good because Jews, and Judea was a backwater of the Roman Empire. So for there to be any Jews mentioned in uh, Tacitus' history is quite remarkable, but he actually mentions, mentions Jesus. And he's talking about A.D. 64, where the Roman emperor Nero lit, was accused of lighting Rome on fire. A.D. 64 was the time where Jesus has already been dead because remember when, what's the, what's the date of Jesus' execution? 30, AD 30. So Tacitus is writing about things that happened, oh, let's say about here, AD 64. Okay? So he's writing about those things. He says this Nero was accused, or everybody thought that Nero, who was kind of a lunatic uh, emperor, himself uh, burned Rome, set Rome on fire. Why he would do that, I have no idea. To suppress this rumor, the Roman Emperor Nero fabricated scapegoats. And uh, unfortunately, oh, this is. No, it's not up there. Okay. So if you got it on the handout, um, it's on the handout. Otherwise, you'll just have to listen to me uh, read it. To suppress this rumor, the Roman Emperor Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were properly called. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Emperor Tiberius's reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. But in spite of this temporary setback, that is, the execution, the crucifixion, the deadly superstition broke out afresh. Not only in Judea, where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. All degraded and shameful practices collect and flourish in the capital. Tacitus is not a believer. He thinks the Christian faith is a superstition. But what does he say is bedrock historical fact here? Christ lived, was executed, was crucified under Pontius Pilate in Judea between A.D. 26, 36 A.D. That he started, he was the originator of a movement, and that movement halted temporarily because of the execution But then that broke out afresh despite that setback and spread all the way to Rome, some 1,500 miles away. That's Tacitus. That's not the New Testament. That's Tacitus. Tacitus. I remember being a Christian. I was a brand-new Christian. I was two years old in the faith. I was telling everybody about Jesus. God just set my world on fire. Because I'd been in a lot of darkness and I lived and done a lot of stupid things by the time I was 20. And God had broken into my life, set my heart on fire, telling everybody about Jesus. And somebody finally looked at me and said, This stuff is just all a joke. There's no real history behind any of this. And that shook me. You know what I did? I was so shaken. I was on the. I was an Air Force base. I was uh, enlisted at the time, working on F-16s as a mechanic. I went to the base's library, whipped out Encyclopedia Britannica, and just looked up Jesus. I was like, "Cause if he's in Encyclopedia Britannica, it's true." And he was there. He was there, and it mentioned Tacitus. Historical fact, Jesus lived, Jesus was executed, he was executed under Pontius Pilate, he was executed as Christ, which means we have not a good idea why he was executed, because Christ for a Roman would mean king, and uh, there was going to be no um, kings except for Caesar, so we know why he was probably executed. Anyway, he started a movement, the movement experienced a temporary setback. But then it broke out afresh. For whatever reason, it broke out afresh after uh, he was executed, and it spread all the way to Rome, 1,500 miles away. Now, other there were other messiahs at this time, before Jesus and after Jesus, there were other messianic pretenders. Guess what happened to them? They were also executed. Romans did not tolerate people walking around saying, "I'm the king of the Jews." Follow me. They were, either brute, they were either demolished in battle or they were executed as criminals on crosses. None of those messianic movements came back to life after the Messiah was, their messianic pretender was executed. It disbanded. It fell apart. The leader was dead. So, what was different about the Christian faith that the leader died and it broke out and exploded on the scene of human history anyway? It's something to think about. Historical fact number two Jesus was buried in a tomb, its location was known, later the tomb was empty, and the body was missing. Jesus was buried in a tomb, its location was known, later the tomb was found empty, and the body was missing. Now we know from Josephus, Josephus is a, is a Jewish historian of the first century, contemporary of Paul and John, an excellent, um, non, he's a non-Christian. Um, he's as good as Tacitus in terms of history. And we know from him that Jews always buried executed criminals on the night that they were executed because a body could not be laid, um, could not be kept out on a cross overnight because it would curse the land. So Josephus says this, and I don't, Pete, I don't know if we have this one or not. Um, I'll let me read it for you. Josephus says this. He's writing about things about 30 years after Jesus. They, the Jewish rebels who executed some uh, priests in Jerusalem, they actually went so far in their impiety as to cast out the dead bodies without burial, although the Jews are so careful about burial rites that even malefactors who have been sentenced to crucifixion by the Romans are taken down and buried before sunset in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21. So the Romans always gave Jews permission to bury the executed, even criminals on a cross, bury them. you got to get them in the ground because if you leave them out overnight, the Jews believed that the land was cursed. So you had to bury the one that was hung on a pole or hung on a cross because the curse of God was upon him you couldn't let him out, leave him out overnight. So you buried him, so that his curse, that curse that laid upon him, didn't infect the whole land, because the land of Israel is considered to be holy. Romans let Jews bury their dead. So even just from Josephus, we know that Jesus would have been buried, and the tomb would have been um, known where it was buried, where he was buried, by uh, the authorities that were uh, authorized to bury uh, bury the tomb. Anyway, in spite of Josephus, we can go to Matthew, Matthew 27. I'm going to skip, for the sake of time, um, the background, Matthew 27, 62 to 66. Let's actually read Matthew 28, 11 to 15. Now, again, we're not going to look at this as the inspired word of God. You can just say this text is garbage. There's nothing true about this text. But there is something that we can see here historically, we'll put our historian's hat on, that we can see that is uh, very interesting. So let's read this together, just as historians, Indiana Jones, Matthew 28 11 to 15. While Mary and Mary were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened uh, that the tomb had been rolled away, that there were angels that said that Jesus had been risen, etc. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story, here it is. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. What's the historical fact here? Matthew's writing between 70 and 80 AD this is the story what's the story that the Jews are saying now we have unbelieving Jews who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead and we have believing Christians right that believe that Jesus rose from the dead and they're arguing the Christians are you know preaching in Jerusalem and saying Jesus Christ is Lord he rose from the dead the Jews are saying what the unbelieving Jews are saying what no he didn't really rise from the dead you guys stole the body And that's the story that was going on in Matthew's day. That's the story that's being told. Well, if you have the handout, this text reveals the state of the argument about the empty tomb and the missing body between disciples of Jesus on the one hand and unconvinced Jews at the time of the writing of Matthew. The Jews are arguing that the Christians stole the body. The Christians are arguing that the Jews bribed the soldiers To say that the Christians stole it. That's the story. The key, however, is that the entire argument simply assumes these things. Simply assumes that, number one, Jesus had died. Number two, was buried in a tomb. Number three, that the tomb's location was known by key members on both sides. Number four, that the tomb was found empty. Number five, that the body was missing. Number six, the non-Christian Jewish side did not know where the body was and never did recover it. Do you see what their argument presupposes? You stole the body. That's, what that's, that's the story. You stole the body. That presupposes the body, the tomb is empty and the body's missing. Are you getting that? The Jews are saying, the Jews are conceding, the tomb was empty, and the body was missing. What's their explanation for that? You stole it. You stole the body, and you made this all up. Bro, that's dope. The tomb is empty. The body is missing. We're not saying Matthew is reliable, inspired word of God. We're just looking at as historians. What does Matthew record? What the Jews were saying, the Jews of his day were saying, just a few years later. They're conceding the tomb was empty. Historical fact number three. It is historically certain that the original, earliest key apostolic witnesses were absolutely convinced that God had raised Jesus from the dead and resurrection. That's a historical claim, not a Believing claim. The earliest witnesses were absolutely convinced. This is historical fact, not a Bible is God's word fact. The earliest witnesses themselves were convinced that God had raised Jesus from the dead and resurrection. This comes from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. Let me read it and then let's talk. Historical fact number four also builds upon this text. Paul writes here to the Corinthians. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, and which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what in turn I had received, namely that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul. What did I say the date was for Jesus' execution? Thirty. Thirty. New Testament scholarship historically is convinced that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, this letter here, A.D. 55, okay? That's what? 25 years. Now, Paul first introduced himself and came to Corinth in A.D. 50 and preached to them. The letter's five years later. So the message that he delivers, verse uh, 1, 2, and 3 to them, is what he was preaching to them five years early. That brings us back to A.D. 50. Now, Paul was converted to the Christian faith just two or three years, some say one year, after the crucifixion of Jesus. So, A.D. 32, 33. In Galatians 1, we know historically that Paul says, after three years after my conversion, I went to Jerusalem to talk with Peter to see if their gospel was the same as my gospel. And when I did, I received from them the same gospel that I was already preaching. I received from them what he writes down here, that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised from the dead, that he appeared to James, Peter, Paul, the 12, the 500. So though 1 Corinthians is written in AD 55, what he gives us here is the gospel that he received back here in AD 35 just five years away from the crucifixion. This is what Peter and James and all the other apostles were already, had already been preaching in before Paul got there. So here we have the earliest bedrock, historical bedrock, for what the, what the apostles were preaching right out of the gate. What was their message right out of the gate? Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ raised from the dead, and he appeared. Several appearances. Why does it take that shape? Because they were convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. They were convinced. Historically. They were so convinced that they died for this message. Let me ask you a question. Do people die for something they know is a lie? No, it's a lie. No. People don't die for something they know, know is a lie. People die for something they absolutely are convinced and believe in. Now, they might be deceived. They might be wrong. But if they're convinced, they can be willing to die for something they know is a lie. So, it's historically certain that the original earliest witnesses were absolutely convinced that God raised Jesus from the dead and resurrection. Proving it by their martyrdoms. Historical fact number four the reason why the earliest witnesses were convinced that God raised Jesus from the dead was because they were convinced that Jesus objectively appeared to them in a resurrection body. That's the same text, verses five, six, seven, and eight. The point is crucial because the New Testament evidence is universally agreed that the empty tomb and the missing body were insufficient evidence to create faith in Jesus as resurrected Lord. A resurrected body is not a ghost, hallucination, or vision. Resurrection means only one thing in Jesus' day. God takes a dead body, brings it back to life, transforms it, and makes it fit for the life of the age to come makes it fit for the new creation. Resurrection by definition means there is no body in the tomb. If there is a resurrection, by definition, the tomb must be empty. Does that make sense? You can't have a tomb in, you can't have a body in the tomb and have a resurrection. Because by definition, a resurrection is God took that body, recreated it, made it alive again, breathed life back into it, transformed it into a life, an immortal body fit for life in the age to come. they are convinced that Jesus appeared to them in a resurrection body. Absolutely convinced. Appeared. So that's historical fact. They're so, they were so convinced that Jesus was resurrected and appeared to them that they went to the ends of the earth with their message and died for that message. So those are his four historical facts. Jesus was executed crucified <clears throat> under Pontius Pilate about A.D. 30. Jesus was buried. Jews always buried the body. The tomb's location was known. The tomb was empty. The body was missing. The earliest disciples were absolutely convinced that God raised Jesus from the dead and resurrection. And the only reason they give for that conviction is they say and claim and believe that he appeared to them. Those are, are historical facts. I'm sorry, let me say that one more time. Those are historical facts Facts, not theological um, truths. The most reasonable explanation for these four facts is a resurrection. That's the best explanation for the historical evidence. If resurrection was not a supernatural event, you know what all historians would say created the Christian faith? a resurrection. If resurrection was a naturalistic occurrence, historians would say, if you ask a historian, what explains the Christian faith? Why, why did it start? Why did it begin? Why did it take the shape that it did? Every historian would say, resurrection. But because it's a supernatural explanation, historians not Believing historians, but unbelieving historians table table the question and wait and, and they don't answer they can't answer the question fully. All right. That's food for thought for historical points for a resurrection. But the point was actually not to argue for the resurrection, the point is actually to argue about scripture. The resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus. The resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus that he is who he says he was and that all that he said was true. So historically, if God raised Jesus from the dead in resurrection, then his view of Scripture can be ours. That's all I'm arguing. God said Jesus is... Vindicates, God vindicates Jesus at the resurrection, says he is who he said he was. The Jewish religious leaders had said he's a liar and a blasphemer. The resurrection vindicates Jesus, says, no, I'm telling the truth. He is who he said he was, and therefore his view of Scripture can be ours. In conclusion, in conclusion, we have looked at Scripture's testimony concerning itself. It asserts that it is the word of God. For many of us, that'll be sufficient for us to build our lives upon that book. I've given you a second argument for the historicity of the resurrection. If Jesus did, in fact, historically rise from the dead as the best explanation of all the historical evidence, then Jesus' view of Scripture can be ours. That's all I'm saying with that one. You now have to make the very hard decision and process all this and decide what you think about Scripture. I hope that you'll come to the conclusion like I have that it is the Word of God. Let's pray. Mm. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for its witness concerning itself, that it is reliable and true, that it is from you, and that you have given it to us in love, so that we may build our lives upon it, so that we may know you and be wise unto salvation, that it points us to Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the entire world, that we may have faith in him and have eternal life. I also want to thank you this morning for Tacitus and Josephus. I want to thank you for these historians of the first century that give us glimpses of the first century world. Little footprints that you have broken into human history and acted, that these things may be true. And what I pray for us today that you will help us to really process and consider these claims. I pray that you'll help the skeptic today to really wrestle with the historical questions of how the Christian faith began historically and why it took the shape that it did. And to wrestle with the four historical facts that I've provided today. But Lord, at the end of the day, Human arguments only go so far. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work in this place, softening hearts, giving eyes to see Jesus. And all that you are for us in him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.